Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. In 1969, a little over 50 years ago, Shirley Chisholm was sworn in as the first African-American woman to serve in Congress as a congressional representative for Brooklyn, New York. Today, there are 25 African-American women in the House of Representatives, one being Alma Adams, who represents North Carolina's 12th Congressional District and who has served in Congress since 2014. Twenty-four years after Chisholm joined Congress, we saw our first African-American woman elected senator when Carol Mosley Braun was elected to represent the state of Illinois in the U.S. Senate in 1992. It would take another 24 years before we saw a second black woman elected to the U.S. Senate with the election of Kamala Harris to represent the state of California this past November. African-American women are also being elected to state and county positions. One of the most dramatic examples was the election of 17 African-American women to be judges in Harris County, Texas, this past November. And in North Carolina, Anita Earls was recently elected to serve as a justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court, bringing the total number of African-American women on the seven-member court to two. Justice Earls joined Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, who made history first when she became the first black woman to win election to statewide office in North Carolina without first being appointed by a governor in 2008 when she was elected to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Chief Justice Beasley was appointed to the North Carolina Supreme Court in 2012 and was elected to a full eight-year term in 2014. Chief Justice Beasley again made history in February of this year when she was appointed by Governor Cooper to be the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, making her the first African-American woman to ever serve as Chief Justice in this state. In addition to being elected to political office, African-American women are being recognized as a powerful voting bloc. The power of black female vote was acutely recognized in the 2017 Alabama special election for the vacant U.S. Senate seat in which the mobilization of and the voting by African-American women ensured the defeat of the Republican candidate Roy Moore and the success of the Democratic victor Doug Jones. However, even though African-American women are being elected in record numbers at a rate that outpace African-American men, It is still difficult for African-American women to secure high-profile offices in both the state and national level. For example, despite Stacey Abrams' historic yet ultimately unsuccessful run to be governor of Georgia, no black woman has ever been elected governor. And while the black female electorate is recognized as a valuable voting bloc, many of the issues that are of particular importance to black women are still the most likely topics to be overlooked when elected officials are making policy-making decisions. 
On this evening's show, we're going to talk about African-American women in politics, where we are and where we need to go. We are privileged to have with us in the studio Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, who I just mentioned, and she is the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court and, as I mentioned, the first African-American woman ever to hold that position. Also joining us by phone is Jessica Holmes. She is an attorney and chair of the Wake County Board of Commissioners, and she is a candidate for the North Carolina Commissioner of Labor. Also joining us in the studio is Erica Wilson. She is a law professor at UNC Chapel Hill and is the newly appointed director of clinical programs. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Chief Justice Beasley, I'd, I'd like to start with you. You've been involved in politics for a number of years, uh, since 2002, when you were a district court judge in Cumberland County. Um, politics is a messy business uh, for so many reasons. Um, why did you decide to run for office? Well, and I was actually appointed in 1999 by Governor Hunt to the district court, and so this is my 20th year of service on the di- on the bench, which is hard for me to believe in a lot of a lot of ways but you know I think um, in so many ways even before I assumed elective office I was very active in helping other uh, candidates get elected and I've always thought that was really important I mean even as a child it was a part of um, just the cultivation around my family's involvement in the community we knew that that was expected of us and I remember at six years old, um, campaigning for a local mayor. Um, and, and at the time, I mean, a lot of young folks don't know, there was a thing called a 45. And there was a little <laughs> jingle on a 45. And I remember literally going door to door as a six-year-old, passing out these these 45 uh, records for uh, to, to support this, this mayoral candidate. So I've always known the importance. I attended a women's college, Douglas College of Rutgers University, which has the Eagleton Institute for Women uh, in in American politics, and studied a lot there. But I never really saw myself as a candidate. Um, I always knew I would be engaged in some kind of way. And then the opportunity presented itself in in 1999 um, after years of practice. But I was a young judge. I mean, I was a judge by the time I was 32 years old. Um, and, and, and things have worked out pretty well since then. So it's interesting when you say you were um, a young judge because, Jessica, um, Attorney Holmes, you became the youngest commissioner when you mm-hmm. were elected to Wake County. Um, can you talk about that run and, and why you decided to get involved in politics? I was always one of the people that was involved in politics but not from being in office. I was someone who participated in Moral Mondays, who marched, um, who was very focused on advocacy at the General Assembly. And it took someone approaching me and saying, how about you come inside of the building and that you have a seat at the table? And I had never imagined that being an option for me. It's one of those things where it's difficult to see yourself in a position when you don't see anyone that is like you in Mm -hmm. that position. So it took a while for me to wrap my head around the fact that people who look like me, people who are my age, uh, women, you know, black women, not only have a voice in politics, but should also have a seat at the table. So how old were you when you were elected to that county commissioner position? 
I was in my 20s. <laughs> and I've now served for five years with the last two years being as chair of that board, managing a billion-dollar budget over 4,000 employees. So, Erica, you not only study constitutional law right in the area, you study history, you study political science, politics. Can you share your thoughts on something that both Chief Justice Beasley and Attorney Holmes kind of uh, pointed out, which is uh, an opportunity presented to them, that people kind of tapped them on the shoulder and said, I think it's, you know, you would be good in this particular position. Can you talk about why it's so important that um, African-American women become involved in politics. So I think it's important to contextualize it and and think about how African-American women have traditionally been excluded from politics, both in terms of being able to exercise their voice through the vote uh, and certainly um, the process of being a representative. And so given the history of marginalization of African-American people generally and African-American women specifically, African-American women bring a unique perspective um, to politics, to leadership generally. And African-American women through the years have learned to be resourceful, solution-oriented. And so it's important that that perspective be bought uh, into politics, particularly to the extent that African-American women can identify with and represent um, a sector of voices that's traditionally not represented in politics, to be in the room, to be at the table, and to uh, be able to shine a light on perspectives that otherwise would not um, be heard. Yeah, well, you know, we have a, in in North Carolina, I'm, 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 I'm pleased with our history of uh, African-American women uh, in, in politics. I go back to uh, Annie Kennedy, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, was uh, the first African-American woman in the uh, North Carolina state uh, legislature, and uh, as far back as uh, Rita Alexander, mm-hmm. uh, who was a uh, district court judge uh, doing Jim Crow, <laughs> even, mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in uh, Guilford uh, County, and uh, Eva Clayton, who has always been uh, an activist, uh, ran for uh, uh, Congress uh, in 1968 uh, to, uh, the way of motivating African-Americans to uh, register uh, to uh, vote and was finally elected to that uh, position in 1990 uh, as the first uh, African-American uh, to be uh, become a member of Congress uh, from the state. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that history. Is, is, is there, however, a competition between African-American men and African-American women in the, uh, in the political structure from the vantage point that, uh, that, that, that you sit and watch and observe uh, what's going on in our nation's, uh, our state's politics? This is Jessica speaking, and I would say, yes, there's, there can be a tension in that dynamic. I was at a meeting just yesterday, and I was the only woman present in a room full of black male leaders with very strong personalities. (laughs) And there were times when I had to assert myself and make sure that there was a recognition that I was in the room and that my presence was important and that my perspective was important. That said, there doesn't have to be that inherent tension. For example, I served with 
um, Commissioner James West, who has been an incredible mentor to me and has really helped me find my voice in politics. Um, but that said, being a woman in politics in general, in any male-dominated situation, you're going to have to go above and beyond to prove yourself, to be heard, and to make sure that you're not ignored at that table. And what are some of the other barriers that African-American women, you know, especially face when it comes to being involved in politics? I think Jessica hit the nail on the head when she said that it is difficult to think of yourself as the candidate, as the person who really ought to be (coughs) well-suited for a particular position when you don't see somebody who is holding that position. And so, so much of that cultivation happens through mentoring. And when there are not people who are holding the position that might be attractive to you, um, it's it's hard to break in through step mentoring. The, and, and the mentoring is very different. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't be mentored by white men or white women, but it is a very different in mentoring experience. And so that is a challenge, and it can be a barrier. Clearly it's a barrier, but or else we'd have more African Americans in service, um, not just across the state, but across the nation. So I think it is... Um, really incumbent upon all of us who are currently in service and those of us who've served. And thankfully, I think Jessica and I have both been beneficiaries of mentoring experiences with those who've been in service, um, that it it is just really so much more difficult to do this work Mm -hmm. um, without having the insight of folks who've come before us. Mm -hmm. Um, As the first and only African-American woman to serve as Chief Justice in North Carolina, um, and only the fourth in the country, uh, two are retired now. One is currently serving uh, Chief Justice Burnett Johnson in Louisiana. Um, you know, I have always loved and respected Chief Justice Henry Fry, but I can certainly tell you that um, his uh, wisdom and insight um, of he and, frankly, um, Mrs. Shirley Fry, who uh, has been uh, a friend all, always, but also uh, in a very different way, inspiring to my husband um, as the spouse. Um, and, and the other piece of that is, you know, um, um, there are not a whole lot of African-American men who serve as the spouse of the woman who is in service. And so um, he has also appreciated her insight into um, his role and, and what that ought to look like and what it might look like and how he can really fashion it for himself because there have been no predecessors. So I, I do think in order to not just have the mentoring experiences for ourselves, it's important and incumbent upon us to make sure that we're also passing along our experiences to others, to make sure that young women understand that they really are capable and qualified to serve, and that rather than looking at everybody else around them as somebody who might be the person for a particular position, that maybe they ought to look at themselves Mm -hmm. and think about ways that we can, as leaders, um, be inspiring to them and help to also open up some doors for them. Because I don't think it's enough for us to just sit back and say, oh, they're not enough of us. I think it is incumbent upon us to teach um, and to lead and help folks to see that there are ways uh, to penetrate some ways that seem absolutely, completely um, unavailable. But I think that is also our responsibility. Well, you know, predating uh, your uh, appointment uh, by uh, Governor Hunt, uh, you had uh, Patricia Tillman Goodson, who basically followed the same route <laughs> that uh, that you followed. 
in uh, going up to the uh, to to the to the uh, Supreme Court uh, in North Carolina. How important was her presence and uh, her, I guess, uh, uh, the model that she set uh, in kind of showing you or helping you to move up the uh, up the ladder. I think Justice Timmons Goodson's service and mentorship has been invaluable to me, but she was the trailblazer in North Carolina, so she has really uh, set the pace for all women African-American jurists um, in the state and to have also been from Cumberland County. (laughs) Um, So I was literally sitting um, at her foot in in many instances and practicing before her when she was a district court judge. Mm -hmm. So I more than just followed her. I mean, I really got a chance to be a part of her experiences, to to see her and to be a part of what she was doing as a district court judge. I remember when she ran for the Court of Appeals, and I was on her team. I was her assistant treasurer at the time. And it makes a difference to Mm -hmm. have been a part and really have understood what it looks like to run a statewide race because there hadn't until that time, you know, really been that many of us. And so I, without any hesitation, credit her for being an inspiration and really uh, pouring into me and into my journey. Can I just add one other point about the barriers? And I really appreciate what Chief Justice um, and Attorney Holmes said about the mentorship role. But the other piece of it, looking from a 10,000-foot view, is how others see you uh, as an African-American woman and your ability to be in that leadership position. So one of the barriers is really combating narratives and stereotypes about what a leader looks like. uh, And in many ways, that contrasts with some of the stories that we tend to tell ourselves about African-Americans and what they can and cannot do. Uh, So one of the great things about having more African-American women in politics is it deconstructs those narratives and builds new narratives about what leaders look like, not just for other African-American girls or women coming up, but for uh, other people more broadly who would uh, be inclined to support African-American women uh, in political positions. Okay. If I can piggyback on that, and that those barriers about who it is we look to as leaders and who it, what leaders ought to look like, those barriers can be in white communities as well as African-American communities because we are used to being on the right team, and that right team comes to our communities and they, they seek our support, they court the vo- votes around uh, of African-American communities, um, and, 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 and often there's this perception that our communities are monolithic, and we all know that they are not. But there's also an expectation that we deliver, and consistently African-American communities do deliver uh, the vote around successful candidates. And I think we've got to be mindful around what that really means and what our expectations are around the delivery of the vote. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about African-American women in politics. Joining us in the studio is Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. She is the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Also in the studio is Erica Wilson. She is a professor of law at UNC Chapel Hill. And joining us on the phone is Jessica Holmes, an attorney and chair of the Wake County Board of Commissioners and candidate for North Carolina Commissioner of Labor. We hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. Since 2010... 
The North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Chief Justice Sherry Beasley of the North Carolina Supreme Court, Jessica Holmes, attorney and chair of the Wake County Board of Commissioners, and candidate for North Carolina Commissioner of Labor, and Erica Wilson, professor of law at UNC Chapel Hill. And we've been talking about African-American women in politics. Um, We were talking about barriers, and I wanted to get your thoughts on resources and money, because in order to run for office, one has to be able to raise funds. Jessica, let's, um, let's start with you. What are your thoughts about the need for and access to resources in order to run a successful campaign? The lack of family wealth and personal resources was an initial barrier for me as I considered running for office. Um, I've seen candidates establishment candidates who might start their campaigns off with a personal contribution of several thousands of dollars and then their parents are able to give several thousands of dollars and they're able to raise a substantial amount from their personal network. That is a challenge for me and many black candidates, not only across North Carolina, but across this country. So when I initially started to run, I had to be very intentional about a very people-centric campaign where I focus on smaller donations and building capacity because I knew that I wouldn't be able to compete um, on the fundraising level with my counterpart. Chief Justice Beasley, what's been your experience? I would have to agree with Jessica on that. Um, I've had four successful elections, and this will be my fifth in 2020. So Jessica and I will both be on the ballot next year. And, um, you know, I before I became a judge, my, most of my law career was in uh, public service. And so, you know, my clients were not corporate business clients. They were not uh, wealthy folks. Um, and so I, I agree with her that, that, that the fundraising piece um, is a challenge. The other challenge is that um, of, of fairly recent history, um, national outside groups 
are targeting high court races all over the country. And so in my 2014 election, which thankfully was successful, um, I, my opponent and I raised about the same amount of money. Um, but about three weeks out, um, when all of my money was spent, the national groups spent in areas where I hadn't spent. And so while I had been up at a sizable advantage percentage-wise in my race earlier, um, that uh, occurred. And after a 26-day recount um, and me having to hire lawyers, which I didn't answer the recount, so I didn't know it was I didn't know I was going to be the one that had to hire lawyers, but I did. And making sure that there were monitors all over in every single county um, across the state. Um, I won in a race that garnered nearly two and a half million votes by 5,410 votes. Mm -hmm. And so, number one, if if everybody wants to know whether or not every vote counts, it does. Um, And number two, we cannot discount and I'm saying judicial races, um, but, but this outside money is coming in in all kinds of races. And the reality is, especially, I mean, you know, getting targeted also makes you do the research. And so I can tell you where all that kind of money was spent in every single place across the country. It's women and African-Americans who are being targeted. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, in most cases, it's not successful. But just think about the challenges over which you have to come over, overcome when that kind of money is being spent from you. And there's no recordation around who the money is, the individual contributions are coming from. So there's no ability to really determine how best to, um, to, to target those kinds of funds coming at you. So that's a real um, issue around um, high court judicial elections. Thankfully, these the, the, the money hadn't been successful, but it is a barrier. When it's coming in, that means you have to work harder and work in a very different kind of way. Well, you know, as a follow-up to, uh, to, to, to both of your comments, uh, what kind of uh, financial support do you get from the African-American community? I mean, I think that that is one of the things that we need to uh, put out on the table, uh, you know, because we look for... African American success in the uh, political arena, uh, and one of the concerns is always what kind of support uh, is the African American community given to those people who put themselves out there on the line. So, can you kind of talk about uh, uh, your experience with uh, fundraising among and from uh, African Americans? In order to answer this question or address this issue properly, we have to acknowledge where the wealth lies in this country. And unfortunately, it's, it's certainly not congested within the African-American community. So many of my family members and many of the people that I know are struggling to make ends meet. And you know, the last thing they're thinking about is making a contribution to a political campaign. And I do understand that. So financial support within and amongst the African-American community is certainly a challenge because we typically don't have that disposable income. That said, where there is an opportunity to support an African-American candidate from within the African-American community, we have to be committed to doing that. And I'd also like to clarify, all support doesn't have to be financial. And financial support can vary. I have someone right now who has donated $5 a month reoccurring to my campaign for the past year. And while I have much larger donors who give a lot more money, 
I appreciate that person every single time the first of the month comes and there's a $5 contribution from this individual. In addition to that, there are other ways for African Americans to support African American candidates, and that can be by volunteering, that can be by showing up at an event. Um, I need lots of volunteers, and I'm sure Justice Beasley would share the same sentiment that not all support has to be financial. There are gifts and talents that we all have that we can lend to the political process. And can I just pick up on that point just from a broader perspective? Because I do think it's really important to understand uh, how the wealth disparities really put African-American candidates at a disadvantage in terms of garnering financial support, at least from the African-American community. An important statistic to understand that I pulled is seven out of ten African-American women work an hourly wage job, um, meaning they get paid for every hour they work. So not only does that mean it might be challenging to contribute financially, but even in terms of non-financial contributions, volunteering, for example, that may be more challenging. But I think it calls into question um, the way that generally uh, our elections are are funded by money, uh, it impedes our what is supposed to be a participatory democracy. And I think, again, being the law professor on the panel from a larger perspective, uh, we should really think about ways to challenge this paradigm. Supreme Court cases like Citizens United uh, change the game in terms of politics and what it means for political participation. So as we encourage more African-American women to get involved in politics, we should not lose sight of or concede ground that this is an appropriate framework through which our political process should run. And we should always uh, fight uh, efforts, fight the status quo in some ways. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a good example of how uh, we can work within the system to get folks elected. But at the same time, we should also Think about ways to dismantle the current uh, system that is disadvantageous, not just for African-American women, but people uh, who don't have money generally. I, I would agree with um, both uh, Professor Wilson and uh, Commissioner Holmes' comments, respectively. I, I would say that, that African-Americans necessarily have been so helpful and so supportive in so many ways. And they have been really helpful and probably the base of most of my contributions over my years of service. Um, and, and I agree with Jessica that it's important that people be able to give in so many ways. I do think it's important, though, that we appreciate um, the importance of giving. And, and, and I do think, um, you know, that obviously there is a wealth disparity. Um, but, but we, especially in statewide races, it's, it's um, a little bit easier in local races to be able to rely heavily on volunteer support. But the reality is, in statewide races, um, it's expensive. I mean, my, my consultants are telling me I need to raise $3 million. And, and small dollar um, contributions are very valuable and they're very important. Um, but it's also important to realize that um, we have folks in our community who can give. And sometimes my experience has been that we will value the, the importance of a gubernatorial race or a U.S. senatorial race um, and, 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 and sort of not really appreciate the value of the state Supreme Court races or the um, other statewide races, which, um, frankly, will have a much difficult, more difficult time raising money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, fo- the, the, the races at the top of the ticket, those folks will not have a difficult time raising money at all. But those of us from um, 
the, the, the council state races on down to the Supreme Court of North Carolina, those races are a lot more difficult to, to, to raise money for. And so um, I do hope that folks will take a different look at our races and really appreciate that in so many ways there's a much greater need. Uh, my race already, and I, we're not even having filed for election yet, but it's already garnered national attention. And mm-hmm. so we have to, we already know um, that, that the, there will be outside money spent um, and that there will be folks who um, are going to be working very hard to see me removed from the seat. Uh, thankfully, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to work hard, and it, and it is very expensive. Well, how, how, how do we educate uh, our community about those issues and what, how they can c- come up uh, or stand up uh, for these uh, candidates, not only in terms of contributing the dollars, but also contributing the labor, uh, the time, and the uh, other support uh, that's uh, that's necessary. Uh, and, 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 and I know as a candidate, it's difficult for you to be involved in the educational process, but it is a process that continues uh, throughout. So uh, how, how do we do that? You know, actually, for me, the educational process is every day um, because most people, even most lawyers, don't even really know what the chief justice does. Um, Everybody's very proud, um, but most people think that the chief justice only leads the Supreme Court. There are seven of us, and I'm very honored to tell you that it is the most diverse Supreme Court in the country. Uh, We are three African-Americans, three women, and a Jewish member. And then, of course, the African-American chief justice. (laughs) Um, But the other thing that the chief justice does is lead the judicial branch of government. And so in the very same way that the governor leads the executive branch of government and the Speaker of the House and the Senate pro tem lead the legislative branch of government, it's the chief justice who leads nearly 6,500 people who are comprised of elected judges and elected DAs and public defenders and magistrates and court reporters and judicial support staff and a whole host of folks who make the whole court system work. And so I'm really excited about the fact that there's a real opportunity to make a difference in people's lives directly. And so I'm looking at faith justice partnerships and how we can really bring together the faith community. I mean, our churches, frankly, are empty most of the week. Mm -hmm. And the faith leaders are the ones who know about the folks who need expungements. They're the ones who can be hosting, along with judges and DAs, uh, driver's license restoration clinics. And thankfully, that's happening here, right here in Durham and some other places across the the state. But we want to make sure that this is widespread support and activism in the communities around what really needs to happen um, to really make sure that people access to justice. We need recovery courts and drug treatment courts all across mm-hmm. North Carolina, not just in the in the urban areas where there are greater resources, but you know the opioid crisis I think has made all that more um, um, popular around substance abuse. But the reality is, there's always been um, drug misuse issues in our in all communities, and so we need to the court system ought to be a, pro, a, a part of that recovery process and really while the court system traditionally has been a part of dispute uh, resolution it really has to be a part of making sure that people can leave um, the kind of lives we want them to leave we want to make sure that they can take care of their families we want to make sure that they are uh, being productive members of society and being able to hold a job and you can't hold a job if your license is revoked and that's a barrier to so many other pieces of your lives it's a problem when I mean, I think the school justice partnerships that we're doing are really important because the schools have to be a part of the success of young people's lives. And so now in North Carolina, we have raised the age. But in order for raise the age to be successful, schools have to be on board. Law enforcement has to be on board. 
Um, last year, last year there were eleven thousand young people who were referred to the court system from the schools. Mm-hmm. Well, when mm-hmm. children go to school hungry, you have one in five young people in North Carolina who goes to school hungry. Well, that's going to create a whole lot of issues around learning and behavior and mental health. We cannot be aloof around those issues, and the court system has to be a part of those solutions and not um, deviate and, and, and focus on things that have nothing to do with making sure that young people are healthy. So the chief justice's role is hugely important. And we all know that historically in our communities, it has been through the courts that we've been able to have advancements around social um, activities in our lives and political activities in our lives and justice, real justice in our lives. And so there's not a greater demographic that ought to understand the importance of the courts and the role of the chief justice. And so I'm honored to serve and, and look forward to everyone's support. Okay. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and we're going to take a break uh, right now as we uh, come back to uh, continue our discussion about the African-American women in, uh, in politics. So you stay with us, and we'll be right back. The Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. Its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary, measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919-419-3474 or the Center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review where we are talking about the uh, African-American women in, uh, in politics and the roles and uh, duties and responsibilities and barriers uh, that uh, they uh, encounter. Let me just pose to, uh, to, to each of you, uh, because I know that in the election process, uh, you get elected because you have whites who vote for you. And uh, in, uh, in, 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 in the past, that has always been a barrier 
because there are some who will not vote for you just because of the color of your skin. And as a barrier, how do you approach campaigning knowing of the history that, uh, that uh, we've had to encounter with convincing uh, white voters that we are worthy and uh, that, uh, that our time has come where we can make a contribution for the benefit of all of the electorate uh, in the uh, state or in the jurisdiction in which, uh, in which we serve. You know, this will be my fifth uh, election, my, my, my third statewide election, and so I think the statewide element uh, complicates that a little bit. Um, you know, local elections, people tend to know who you are. They mm-hmm. tend to see your face. It's really hard, even crossing the state every day, literally every day, it's hard really to touch, and it's impossible, frankly, to touch every single person, even a fraction, if you really think about it, of the folks who will actually turn out for the election. And um, I will tell you that in 2008 and 2014, I had the same, had different consultants, but had the same conversation with each of them, with each of them bringing up the issue, which was, um, as we think about running TV ads, Mm -hmm. do we put your picture Mm -hmm. on the ad? Which was an astounding question to be asked. Yeah. I wasn't surprised in 14 because I'd heard it before. But in 08, I just couldn't believe that this was an issue that we were seriously considering. And were there places around the state where I should run my picture and places around the state where I should? Well, money is a limitation, so I wasn't going to have that much <laughs> <laughs> TV media. And certainly the national and, and the higher profile statewide candidates will buy most of the TV media in 2020. But the fact that we're still asking that question, I think, says a whole lot about, and it brings bearing around the question that you're asking, is how do we let people know that we are qualified to serve? Um, and, 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 and in the ways that race, are important, race is important, and it is always important, we should not mitigate the importance of race. How is it an advantage, frankly? Um, and, and that's really sort of been my message, that number one, we really shouldn't be afraid to talk about race. And I think often the presumption is that black people are excited about talking about race, and, and usually nobody wants to talk about it, black, white, or anybody else. Um, and also that, that, that in not being afraid to talk about race, that we can be thinking about how diverse our experiences are and, not, and realize that the diversity really is a value, um, not a hindrance. Um, and so, you know, in 2014, um, I was able to purchase some media, uh, not enough to cover the whole state, um, I had to divide between uh, radio media and television. Mm-hmm. But most of the television media was run in the eastern part of the state. Mm-hmm. And that was a purposeful decision. Mm-hmm. Attorney Holmes? I actually recall a very similar situation as Justice Beasley in 2014 when my consultant, we were considering doing a mail piece to independent voters. Mm -hmm. And I was asked the question about whether or not we should include my photo. And I was told things like, well, it's it's good that you have a white name. Yes. Or a name (laughs) that does not identify you Mm -hmm. as someone who is not white. And, you know, my thought was, this is my race and people should know who I am. And I chose to include my face on that mail piece. But the fact that that was even a conversation Mm -hmm in 2014 
And it wouldn't surprise me if it's not a conversation with my consultant as I gear up to consider more male pieces. But typically when it comes to people who hold political office, particularly white males, there is a certain deference or assumption of competency that we as black women do not receive per our title or per our position. It has to be earned. And every single day, in spite of my degrees, in spite of my resume, every single day I have to prove that I'm worthy. Mm -hmm. So something that black women and black candidates should be aware, this isn't something that you do one time or that you even do one race. Every single day and every single race that I run, I have to continuously prove myself. But that's okay. Um, as someone who is used to sometimes being the only person of color in the room, you know, we as black women are, are resilient and we're accustomed to being undervalued and not given the due that we've earned. So that shouldn't be a barrier to running for office. And when it comes to proving myself, I'll just say that I'm up for the challenge. It seems like it's really important. I'm glad uh, both of you did to acknowledge it. I mean, I think one of the barriers uh, maybe in, in the recent past is that there's been a reluctance to even acknowledge the salience of race, um, to pretend as if uh, race is not an issue, to pretend as if uh, this question of whether or not one should include their photo um, on media uh, is, is a silly question to pretend that it is when it really isn't. Uh, and so I think in in terms of uh, thinking forward, I think it's progress, right, that we can even have this conversation and mm -hmm. acknowledge that it is an issue. And so once you can acknowledge that it is an issue, then the next step becomes what do you do about it, right? Uh, and how do we um, educate the masses? And the more we have African-American women in, uh, in politics who do well, again, as I said earlier, it starts to change the narrative. It starts to change what people associate an African-American woman in politics with. Uh, it also might create an extra layer, a layer of pressure because you have to know that when you are in that position, you are paving the way uh, or digging a hole for those who come uh, behind you. You know, uh, Commissioner Holmes mentioned uh, the uh, experience of being the only person of color in the room. Uh, do, does 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 that help uh, in being able to promote the interests and promote the campaign that you've had this prior experience where you've had to navigate through uh, the stereotypes uh, that uh, that's been posed uh, for for us <laughs> uh, within the uh, within within our society. Does the prior experience help? Right. The prior experience of being, you know, having to be in uh, one of more uh, or a couple of people in the room with whites and having to compete with that interest as opposed to someone who's not had that experience. You know, I don't know, Professor Joyner. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little older than Commissioner Holmes. And I just, it's just been a way of life. And um, it's, I just, um, I hardly even notice it anymore, to tell you the truth. Um, because whatever's going on, I'm so busy with being engaged with whatever that is. I just, um, it's not that I'm not cognizant that what I say is not important mm -hmm. and that it will be received um, in, a, in a different way. Um, but I just, 
it, that's just the way it is. I mean, I think Commissioner Holmes is talking about our experiences. Those tend to be daily experiences. Those are not the exception. Those mm-hmm. tend to be yeah. the rules. And mm-hmm. so I don't know that I'm always cognizant that, um, you know, I need to think it through. Okay, I'm the only one in the room. I don't know that I really think about the, through like that. I mean, initially when you start, start get started, I think it's, it's a little shocking. But um, there just kind of comes a point where it is where it is. Um, you know that when you show up and you open your mouth, mouth you need to do a very good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and there'll be people who are surprised by that, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, which is amazing. But that's just that's just the way it is. And they'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very articulate. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's the term. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about barriers, and we've been talking about money issues, just being kind of like the only one. What advice would you give? Because we want to encourage more African-American women to consider politics. So what advice would you give to someone who is toying with the idea of um, maybe running for office, but they're concerned about um, the barriers and the challenges that we've talked about? I would say contact somebody who's doing something you'd like to do. I mean, even if it's just an outside thought, I mean, what is the harming having a conversation with somebody about what the challenges are and what the role is and what the responsibilities are and and how well they enjoy and why they think it's worth um, making the effort and the sacrifice? and I think often there's a reluctance to have the conversation if you don't know the person, but there really shouldn't be. I mean, I think if, it's, if there's a job out here you want, and for your law students, if they, you know, I tell them all the time, if there's somebody wants to tra- practice transportation, I'll call somebody who's doing that and have coffee with them. I mean, why not? You have nothing to lose and everything to gain from the experience. Um, and the relationship building is always so valuable so that even if you ultimately end up not running, there is a whole lot to gain from just having the relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not in politics, but I think there are some similarities. I always tell students who are thinking about doing something that others haven't done, you never know who needs you, right? I have this story where I became a law professor because I had two black women law professors. And so you inspire the next generation. And in some ways, you have an obligation um, to to push forward and not be stymied by the barriers that exist. If you have an interest in it, uh, go for it. These barriers are not insurmountable, uh, and we don't make progress unless we continue to plot forward and do the hard work. Sometimes it is hard, and that's that's okay, uh, but it's possible, and you can do it, and someone needs you to do it. Mm-hmm. And and kind of on that point, can, can we talk a little bit about the need for African-American women being involved in the campaign, even if they are not the person who's running, but just in those leadership positions? I mean, I think we've seen uh, in in national politics that uh, the perspectives and voices matter, uh, and particularly because black women do carry a lot of weight in terms of influencing elections, and so it's really important that our voices are heard in shaping uh, the candidates' campaigns, the issues that get brought to the forefront. uh, Just by virtue of our lived experience, uh, we offer a unique perspective that's often not in the room when it comes to politics. And so it's really important that we, where we can, we do take those roles uh, on campaigns in order to really uh, push the issues to the forefront. Commissioner Holmes, you want to chime in on that? Yes, I'd love to chime in regarding barriers. And what I'd say to someone that is considering running for office is, one, have have courage. 
um, have the audacity, uh, whether you see someone in that position that looks like you or not, um, have the audacity to believe that you can make a difference yourself. Um, I feel very strongly that people should not run for political office for the sake of running for political office or to have a title. Um, the purpose of running for political office is service. Uh, where is it that you see there needs to be a change? How can you improve the lives of people that you care about? That's the first thing that someone should think about as they run for office. How can they use their particular talents to make a difference? This is not something people should do you know, for, for a title or for a position, because leadership is defined, in my opinion, by your service, not your, not your title. Your service to your community should precede you running for office. And, and Attorney Holmes, you, um, the Chief Justice has talked about the difficulty in running a statewide election versus kind of a local or county, and, and you are taking a step now where you're going from, you know, Wake County election to statewide because you're running to be commissioner of labor. Can, can you talk a little bit about what went into your decision to, to go ahead and, and make that leap? One of the factors that I considered was there are people all across North Carolina that consider me to be their commissioner. Uh, I sometimes use the hashtag people's commissioner. There are so many issues across our state, and I'm born and raised in Pender County, although I live in Wake County. When we make rules or policies, they only apply to Wake County citizens. And I really want to make a difference all across North Carolina, such that when policies and initiatives are put forth, they impact my family in Pender County the same way that they impact someone else's family in Buncombe County. 2020 marks 20 years um, since the same person has been in the Department of Labor and she has announced her retirement. Um, I was planning on running regardless of that retirement because I think it's about time that we as a state do better um, by our workers. The minimum wage hasn't changed in several years and quite frankly it's not enough to make ends meet. We should be talking about what a living wage looks like. We should talk about safety and the welfare of our workers. And those are the type of issues that I want to bring to the forefront for all of North Carolina, a place where I'm, I'm born and bred here. One of the things I'd like to talk about as well is we've, we've talked about the power of the African-American female vote I mentioned in the opening the 2017 uh, senatorial race in, in Alabama. Um, but the power or the uh, results that African-American women get as a voting block doesn't always translate into policy decisions that are being made. Uh, what can we do to make sure that that electoral power actually translates into policy-making decisions? So one of the things that we uh, haven't talked a lot about is um, sort of organizing and advocacy efforts outside of the candidate, right? And so in some ways it's not enough uh, for us to get African-American women uh, in office. We have to help them once they get into office. And this uh, politics is run through interest and pressure. Uh, and so it's really important that as a community we don't stop once we get a candidate in office, but that we actually advocate um, for policies, push them to 
um, to enact policies that are helpful to our community. We need to um, not abandon organizing. We need to continue to put the heat on once they are in office uh, to make uh, policies that better our community. Uh, often politicians respond to the groups that are the most vociferous, whether that's through voice or money or some combination thereof. And so it's really important that as a community, we keep doing that. And, and you asked why there might be this dissonance between what happens when candidates, candidate gets, gets, gets in office and the policies that are actually enacted. And I think that's a piece of it that we don't talk about enough. And, and I, you know, just to add to that, you know, there, there is a uh, requirement, I think, on our part that these candidates be successful when they get into these positions. Because if they're not successful, then it's going to have a rippling effect all the way down. So we have to make sure, and I think that goes to your point, uh, that uh, we need to have uh, advocates that's out there uh, promoting and, and, and pushing. Uh, but this has been a great uh, discussion. We need to do this one again. You know? So well, thank you all so very much. Thanks for having for us. Having, thank uh, you. Time to come on and join us in this discussion. Yes, we'd like to thank Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, Jessica Holmes, attorney and chair of the Wake County Board of Commissioners and candidate for North Carolina Commissioner of Labor, and Erica Wilson, law professor at UNC Chapel Hill School of Law and new director of clinical programs. And we'd also like to thank you, our audience, for spending time with us, taking time out of your Sunday evening. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something and that you will use this to motivate you to get involved with some political campaigns that are going on this political election season. If you have any questions or comments for us, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. <laughs>